HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Yeah, that's right. It's that time again. Today is Monday. It's 12 o'clock, actually 12.01. And it's time for... What doesn't kill you? Food industry insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're going to start the program off with my new segment. Um, I was calling it Aches and Pains, but uh, I decided that it was just too negative. And since my program is often kind of a downer, <laughs> I thought it might be better to have joys and sorrows. So um, it was actually really hard to pick uh, the sorrows because there were so many... <laughs> In the past couple of weeks, I mean, uh, you know, three weeks ago, we had the Belgian uh, bombing in Brussels. Uh, we've passed all these crazy laws uh, against, uh, you know, people being able to use the bathroom that they want and women being able to access birth control. Uh, so those are those are some of the many sorrows uh, that affect me and, of course, most of you. Um, but uh, here is a tip of the hat to my guests today who happen to be a couple of, of beef cattle rancher type guys, um, one being sort of on the industry side, one being kind of a renegade who's going to, I suspect, have quite a bit to say about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the topic of our conversation today. Today. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to talk about um, this brand new product that just came out. It's owned by Hershey, uh, just bought by Hershey, actually. I thought it was a very interesting purchase for them. It's called a meat bar. That's right, folks. A meat bar. It's called Crave, K-R-A-V-E. This is good for you guys. So, you know, you can't just like uh, you cattle guys out there, you can't uh, dis discount this, even though it's owned by the Chocolatier. Um, it was founded, the company was founded in 2009 and uh, positioned in the market as a leader in the premium jerky category. Now, this is this is news to me. Um, and apparently what set <laughs> the company a part of what caught my interest uh, from the competitors in the category was not that it was like premium jerky the way you think of a Slim Jim, you know, that you grew up with, but the unique flavor varieties it offered, such as black cherry barbecue pork, basil citrus turkey, and chili lime beef. Okay, gag me, 
because I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And the um, manager, the general manager of the company says, his quote was, consumers are figuring out that meat snacks are a good on-the-go choice. Well, that may be for all you protein junkies out there, but um, really, black cherry barbecue pork? No, I'm sorry. That just doesn't make it for me. Okay, here's a joy. A really great joy. This was something I saw in, I think, the Huffington Post or something. There is a Labrador retriever in Seattle who has mastered public transportation and takes herself to the park on the bus. How hot is that? Don't you just love that? Dogs are the greatest. Okay, and then here's my other joy, and this really is a tremendous joy, um, and that is the following. Um, and I'm going to read this. I think it was from Eco News or something like that. Uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Thomas Coffin of the Federal District Court in Eugene, Oregon, has decided in favor of 21 young plaintiffs in their landmark constitutional climate change case against the federal government. Judge Coffin ruled on Friday against the motion to dismiss, which was brought by the fossil fuel industry and federal government. Government. The court's ruling is a major victory for the 21 youth plaintiffs, ages 8 to 19, from across the U.S. in what Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein call the most important lawsuit on the planet right now. In other words, these kids came up with the idea of suing the federal government and the fossil fuel industry for wrecking the planet. <laughs> And they're going to get their day in court. I love it. I mean, how hot is that? So um, those are my joys and sorrows. And now we will take a brief interlude whilst our uh, sponsor drop plays. And then we will be right back with uh, my two guests, Bill Bullard, uh, who runs an organization called RCAF USA, and Steve Dittmer, uh, a you know communications expert um, who has been in the beef industry for many, many years um, and is now the executive vice president of the Agribusiness Freedom Foundation. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with these two old-timey cattle ranchers. Actually, they're not the businessmen like, you know, whatever. But anyway, go on. <laughs> Someone call the doctor, but start spreading the news. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Oh, yes, it is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, uh, and we are going to talk about um, the cattle industry and really, maybe all livestock industry, if these guys are up for it, um, and with its regard to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is, you know, still hasn't been ratified yet, but has been negotiated. It's some 6,000 pages long, very, very complex document, and a very complex, I think possibly it's been called the most the most complex uh, trade deal that has ever come uh, down the pike, as it were. Um, we have another big trade deal that's being negotiated, also in secret, um, called the TTIP, which is the Transatlantic... Uh, uh, trade and agriculture partnership, I believe, um, or uh, something like that. Anyway, that's worth looking at. That's with Europe, with the 27 countries in the European Union. Um, but this one, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, obviously refers to Asian and and uh, sort of Pacific Rim countries. So welcome, guys. Um, let me introduce you first. Our first guest is uh, Bill Bullard. Um, Bill joined RCAF, and that's R-C-A-L-F, USA, as the organization's first executive uh, chief executive officer at the national headquarters in Billings, Montana, in 2001. Um, 
So, and actually April 9th. So only you're experiencing an anniversary moment here, right, Bill? And Bullard has testified on behalf of RCAF USA members before Congress and executive branch agencies. He has managed numerous lawsuits on behalf of the organization and is the organization's registered lobbyist. Bullard, formerly a cow-calf rancher in Perkins County, South Dakota, served as the executive director of the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission from 1995 to 2001. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you so much. Um, And our other guest is Steve Dittmer. Steve has nearly 30 years of experience in managing marketing and communications in the beef industry. He co-published CAF News, which is not to be confused with RCAF, CAF News Magazine for nearly 20 years. His column, Ruminatin, garnered a national following for gathering facts, analyzing situations, and laying out implications and options for readers to digest. He emphasized the benefits of other industry sectors as partners rather than enemies. Oh, I love that, Steve. And evaluation of everything in terms of the ultimate consumer or customer. Uh, He also co-owned a publishing company and his past experiences included Beef Council, uh, Chief Executive Officer, Association Communications uh, Director, and small-time, and a small-time rancher. He is the Executive Vice President of the Agribusiness Freedom Foundation. And thank you, Steve, for joining us uh, today. Um, Bill, why don't we kick it off with you? Um, You're there, right? I sure am. Um, First, let me ask you, does everyone in your industry, and Steve, you have to answer this too, does everyone have that cool mustache like you do? (laughs) No. No? Steve, you're not sporting one of them cool mustaches? I do have a mustache and a beard, but it's not the... Bill's got the real... um, uh, image that you expect from uh, Montana. He sure right? enough does, man. Oh my and God, I have Bill, to you're like. to my wife that it's part genetic. You just can't grow one like that if you want to. Dr. Baxter Black. I quite agree with you. Anyway, Bill, um, now that we've got that important, <laughs> important detail sorted out, Bill, tell us a little bit about RCAF and how it differentiates from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association because you guys are really on the opposite side of a lot of issues that pertain to your industry. Well, we are, and RCAF USA exclusively represents the interests of the farmers and ranchers who raise and sell cattle. We don't represent the interests of the meat packers and the retailers, and the NCBA does. It attempts to represent every segment of the multi-segmented beef supply chain, including the multinational meat packers whose interests are best served if they can purchase my members' cattle at the lowest possible price. Mm -hmm. So there's a natural antagonism between my members and the beef industry that is represented by Steve and by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So we have competing interests within this uh, very, um, very profitable industry. Profitable for some, not so much for others. Um, Steve, tell me, what is Agribusiness Freedom Foundation? That was a new one on me. I'd never heard of your organization. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, basically, we take the free market approach to uh, agriculture, the food production chain. And we want to see, uh, in general, uh, the least amount of government interference as possible. We want to see the fewest amount of regulations as possible. Mm -hmm. Because our approach is to say, look, it doesn't make any difference whether you are a packer, a retailer, a calf operator, breeder, feeder, whatever. Uh, what really is important is what the consumer wants. And um, <clears throat> Bill is right in that the NCBA, uh, for example, tries to take a look at the viewpoints of the retailers, of the packers, uh, of the, the ranchers and the feeders. 
but um, they have always been a, a free market organization. But it's probably uh, a lot of this dates back to the late '80s, <clears throat> and when the NCBA and a lot of the groups, uh, including the U.S. Meat Export Federation, which is another group that involves both cattlemen, uh, feeders, purveyors, and meat packers and, and exporters, all realize that there's only one source of money for our entire industry, and that's the consumer. And if they're not happy, if they're not getting what they want in terms of quality, uh, consistency, uh, convenience, then they're going to go someplace else. And there's always going to be competitors in the market, um, whether it's pork or chicken or turkey or um, and uh, you even mentioned uh, innovation that's going on in the industry. There's a lot more beef jerky and, and sausage products than anybody ever dreamed of 15, 20 years ago. And that's all a result of trying to figure out what consumers would like to have and how we can innovate and, and provide it for them. Well, that's a really sweet story. I love the idea that you're so on the side of the consumer. Um, I'm a little dismayed at what that means for the guys who are actually growing the cattle. Um, so I'm going to ask Bill to talk a little bit about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because I know that your feeling is that it will diminish the U.S. cattle production uh, when presumed... I mean, I, I guess what I want to say, I want you to know. ask... Me, sorry, you guys, let me start over here. I want you to tell me why you feel that the Trans-Pacific Partnership will diminish U.S. cattle production when the idea is, is that it gives us more trading partners and lower tariffs? Well, here's For what export. we need to realize with respect to the TPP. It is a welfare program for the multinational meat packers <laughs> because it eliminates those very competitive factors hmm. that Steve purports to try to follow in the industry. In fact, he mentioned the late 80s. Since the 80s, we've lost half a million cattle producers, farmers right. and ranchers that exited the industry uh, because our industry was unprofitable, because we've been pursuing free trade agreements that actually harmed our industry. Here's why the TPP particularly is a welfare program. Number one, it, in, it uh, extinguishes the identification of a product. For example... Under the TPP, the product of beef, the origin of that product is wherever the animal was slaughtered. That means a JBS meat packer in the United States, world's largest meat packer, second largest in the U.S., has feedlots and packing plants in Canada, in Australia, in Brazil, and the United States. Right. That company can import live cattle from Brazil, Argentina, Peru, Mexico, Canada, slaughter them in the United States, slap a USA label on it, and ship it duty-free to Japan under the TPP. That is not a free market system. That is deception. The second elimination yeah, but we do that of already, Bill. factors. We do that with the part. Canadian and Mexican beef already. I mean... That's so, correct. That's why our industry has shrunk for 20 years, is uh -huh. because with the 20 free trade agreement countries we already have... That has been the rule of origin, and that has facilitated the ongoing demise and destruction of our independent cattle industry in the United States. Okay. It's because they have rendered the origins of U.S. cattle irrelevant. It doesn't matter where the cattle came from anymore because these TPP have artificially eliminated the identification, the product identification, as a factor in competition. The other factor they eliminated is food safety. 
We used to compete on the basis that we had the safest, most wholesome product in the world, bar none. That was our competitive advantage, and we thrived under it. But now, as we've introduced these 20 free trade agreement countries and now the TPP, what we are doing is lowering the standard and making it unlawful for the United States to require foreign countries to have food safety systems at least equal to the United States. That was a standard all the way up until the mid-1990s. Now the standard is these countries only have to have food safety systems in their meatpacking plants that are close enough. It only has to be equivalent to the United States. We used to have monthly inspections of foreign meatpacking plants. No longer can we do that under these trade agreements. Now we have to rely only upon periodic inspections that may occur once every six months, once every year. Okay. And just a paper trail is that. Right, so right. if you can no longer distinguish your product because of safety purposes, can no longer distinguish it because of identification, and the third thing that this does, the TPP for the cattle industry, is our industry has been market-oriented and has lived and died by the law, economic law of supply and demand. When our industry had too much output, when our supply exceeded demand, prices would fall, we would self-liquidate, self-manage supplies. It was mm-hmm. part of the free market system. And then once our supply demand reached an equilibrium, we would start to rebuild our herd. But the TPP insulates the meat packers, the multinational meat packers, from this competitive cattle cycle. Instead, now, whenever prices rise, all the meat packers have to do is begin sourcing cattle from countries where they can obtain it cheaper, which would cause any price strengthening in the U.S. to subside, and it would have the effect of leaving U.S. cattle producers with nothing but the lows in the market. It gotcha. insulates the meat packers from the competitive bellwether in our industry. Okay. We knew we were competitive because of the, of the <clears throat> cattle cycle that coincided with increases supplies and increases in demand and vice versa. Okay, we and got so that. Now that's so eliminated under the yeah, TPP, yeah, yeah. so you cannot argue this is a market-oriented proposal. Well, I want to give uh, t- I want to give Steve a chance to respond to that because that's a lot of uh, that's uh, you know we're talking about prices, we're talking about food safety, and we're talking about uh, country of origin labeling. Um, <clears throat> you a couple know, of things. That, so yeah, let's, Steve, what I, do you have to say to that? Because that's a pretty damning uh, p- portrait that uh, Bill just painted. Bill, Bill's got a long list. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I like his list so far. That, that I won't remember everything, but I remember a couple of things. Number one, there is a huge difference between what the United States and, <clears throat> for the most part, what Canada produces, which is a high-quality grain-fed beef that is not produced really in any quantity. There's some of it in a, in a few places. Yeah. But they are the only ones that produce that kind of high-quality grain-fed beef in the, in the world. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so there is... Uh, nobody else in that respect uh, that's our competitor. What we import from other countries is lean manufacturing beef, mm-hmm. and that is something that's going to be mixed with our, uh, because of our large um, fed cattle industry, we've got a lot of what they call 50-50 trim. It's uh, <clears throat> half lean and half fat. Right. And while I might like a hamburger that's got that much fat in it, most Americans don't. And so we need a lot of lean manufacturing beef to mix with that to make uh, all the ground beef that well, we Well, isn't that what we under. use pink slime for? Isn't that lean, finely textured beef? And don't <clears throat> we have plenty of that in this no, country? No, lean, finely textured beef is a, a very specific process in which they actually warm the trim. This is, mm-hmm. I'm uh, familiar trim. with it. 
this is uh, in, inspected trim, and the reason that um, you, you, they developed the process was because you can't afford to pay people uh, to trim these tiny little pieces of meat with a scalpel. Mm. And I've seen you ladies do this in the in the steakhouse, and. and <laughs> I, I, I kind of say, you really need a scalpel to get every little bit of that fat, and that's another whole Not subject this lady. because we're we're disproving some of those dietary theories also. Um, but we need that because, uh, as Bill referred to, we we have fewer cows now than we did in the mid seventies. Yes, uh, we we slaughtered about eleven million head of cows uh, in those years, and now we're down to about half of that. Right, and we're producing more beef than we ever have in history with fewer cows because mm-hmm. we're much more efficient. Our genetics are better, our feeding, uh, our health and all that stuff is better. So we need that in order because we've, <clears throat> when I was a kid growing up, McDonald's was a brand new thing. We now have a huge demand for ground beef from yeah. all the ground beef chains and a lot of food service um, that people didn't uh, use in the old days. So that's part of it. As far as food safety goes, we've always required USDA equivalent standards. And the part of it that people forget is not just the inspector that's standing over somebody. It's the client and the client's client, the consumer, who also keeps an eye on these things. You can't fool a consumer in Japan or Hong Kong that they're getting a USDA choice steak when they're getting a lean piece of cow from Australia. Their purveyors will also protect them from that. So it's not so much that the ID is lost in trade. In fact, the USMEF, the Meat Export Federation, uh, for all three, uh, beef, pork, and lamb, spend a lot of time promoting U.S. meat in these countries overseas, and it's something that they, they really like. So, And you're and, saying that they're able to support the, the prices that cattle ranchers want to get for that premium quality grain-finished beef? Because uh, I'm, that's not what I'm hearing from ranchers. In, in many places, uh, they are. And, then, of course, the whole point of trade, of exporting, is that there are things that you and I, <clears throat> I can remember eating beef tongue sandwiches when I was a kid, but it's been a long time ago. Um, tongue is something that you can sell for $20 a pound overseas. Mm-hmm. I understand and that. here you make it into dog food. There's a whole list of products that are, uh, I ran uh, on my column here a year or so ago, a picture of, what would be considered a really high-end meal in China. And as I recall, I think one of it was raw chicken liver and one was uh, raw beef lung or something like that, and they give you a little uh, hot pot of water to cook it in at your table. But it's not the kind of thing we would consider uh, very palatable, but that's something that they're willing to pay extra money for. So what happens is, is you get much more value from the total carcass, and that includes hides, that come back to us. There are cultures that are, are, are even better than we are at handling leather. Uh, Mexico is a good example. Mm-hmm. And so you get total value from that, including pharmaceutical and, and industrial raw materials and stuff that comes out of this carcass so that the packer gets more total money and they can then spend more back to uh, uh, back to the, the producer. Beers. And that goes back to the ranchers. Is that is that what's happening, Bill? Are you getting more money per head? Well, there's a, several things that are wrong. Number one, our production domestically is at the lowest level in 20 years. Right. We haven't produced this small amount of beef since the, we passed the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994. And what we have seen is the meat packers have 
become so concentrated and consolidated that today we have four meat packers that control approximately 85% of all the fed cattle market. That's right. They act as, they act as gatekeepers to the market. They decide who does and who does not have timely access. They're, they've shifted their cattle procurement processes in order to benefit them, to have leverage over prices. And what we've seen is that the profits that a competitive market would normally allocate to producers are instead being deflected by these highly concentrated meat packers and redirected right back to themselves. Back in the 80s that Steve mentioned, the cattle producer received 60 cents for every consumer beef dollar spent. 60 cents of every dollar went back to the farmer or rancher. Mm -hmm. But after we went through merger mania in 1980s and after they started exercising buying power in 1990s, by 2000, that 60 cents fell to 46 cents. Mm -hmm. And in 2009, we hit an all-time low of 43 cents. That means something is interfering with the marketplace and, and depriving the independent producers of the profits they ought to, ought to be receiving. And what Steve just pronounced was the exact mantra of the meatpackers. They've been saying for years that, we, that imports don't matter, that imports don't compete with the U.S. They complement the U.S. because we produce high-quality product and we import this lean-grinding product. Well, here's the facts. 20% of all ranchers' income is from the sale of cull animals, right. lean beef. And if we allow unlimited supplies of lean beef from Australia and New Zealand, that essentially suppresses, depresses the price that cattle producers receive for 20% of their income, and that contributed to the ongoing exodus of producers. The other factor here is it's naive to think other countries aren't quickly emulating the United States with high-quality grain-fed beef. With JBS, the world's largest packer, third, second largest in the United States, with packing plants and feedlots in the U.S., in Brazil, in Canada, and Australia, yeah. they can transfer the genetics, the technical and managerial skills, the improved feeding regimes, they can transfer that anywhere in the world at any time. Already in Australia, for example, that has a history of producing lean product, 40% of all the beef in the domestic Australian market today, and this is according to USDA's Foreign Agriculture Service, 40% of that is grain-fed beef. Hmm. Other countries are emulating the United States and are beginning to compete. That's how Australia helped to capture much of the Japanese market. And so it isn't true that we're producing uh, enough beef with our shrinking cattle herd. The fact was is the meat packers have decimated our industry by exerting abusive market power, and it has put us in such a tight supply situation like we've never seen before that only recently did we see the competitive forces in our market unleashed, and cattle producers began to see some of the best prices in history. Until last year, we saw an unprecedented drop in the decline of cattle prices that was contrary to all market fundamentals. We had cattle producers losing over $500 per head, and we are concerned that we have taken another huge chunk of our uh, uh, economy out of our cattle industry 
and extracted equity like we've never seen before in this industry. Um, Steve, I want to talk to you for a minute about the role of packers. I mean, Bill has talked, to, you know, has mentioned a few times how the consolidation of the packing market <clears throat> of meat packers, the processors, uh, the people who are actually slaughtering and then, uh, you know, distributing the, you know, take, fabricating and moving the the product along, and they do they do often have a lot of influence over the price of cattle, actually of any meat. Um, and I wanted to ask you to explain um, something that uh, Bill mentioned in the column he wrote with Chuck Jolly um, about the uh, cash, the price discovering cash market, which seems to be going away. And I assume that that's referring to auctions um, where people would come in and bid on cattle as opposed to a packer saying to a producer, OK, you can bring your cows in, uh, you know, on October 15th and I will give you X number of uh, do- dollars per pound. Which which is the more prevalent model and which one do you think benefits producers more? It, it isn't exactly that. Um, and when you're talking about fed cattle, um, you, when you talk about auction markets out in the country, those are primarily feeder cattle or uh, okay. cows. The fed cattle market is uh, and the cash market, as it's referred to. Uh, is cattle buyers uh, that represent the packers going around out in the country and uh, looking at strings of cattle and, and negotiating with uh, the uh, feeder right. for delivery of cattle for a given price, a certain type of quality of cattle, reputation of cattle, uh, maybe four or five days later. Um, a lot of the cattle these days, uh, because uh, packers, for example, will have contracts with a major chain of steakhouses, and they got to produce uh, 10,000 pounds of portion cut, uh, you know, 14-day aged uh-huh. filet mignons, and on and on and on a list like that. Like to be able to contract on the other side to make sure that they can take care of those customers. Uh, those contracts are done in advance. They can be based on the cash market. Usually are to some extent, plus some basis, and those contracts can be. Uh, on a long-term basis or a short-term basis, they can be based on the futures. But basically, they are going to certain producers and saying, we will offer you so much for this pen of cattle on this date, and it may be two months from that, uh, because they want to make sure that they have the supply that they need. Now, um, Bill talks about there not being any uh, competition, but if you need 25,000 head of cattle a day uh, in three or four different plants, uh, that's a certain amount of capital investment and labor standing there waiting to work. And so there's certainly some pressure on these uh, packers to go out and get what they want. But they not only have to compete for cattle on a cash basis, but they have to compete to contract those cattle. And af- after a period of time, they know who has what pens. There's a lot more tracking going on now within the industry about where the cattle came from, uh, what their uh, lineage is as far as genetics goes, how they mm-hmm. performed in the feed yard, and those records are getting passed along so that the next uh, year when those calves come along, uh, the packers uh, are going to be competing for certain pens of cattle even more than they would others. also has to do with uh, how they've been handled health-wise. Right. So there is competition for contracting those cattle as well as uh, for cash. But what about the fact that packers are allowed to own their own cattle now? 
Like, what does that do to the market? That's been true for decades. I know that, but I mean, I've never heard that be a good thing. I've never heard an independent producer say that that's been a good thing. And there's been a lot of controversy over, uh, you know, whether or not packers should be allowed to own the cattle that they process. Because they can just hold on to their cattle until they get the price they want from the other producers, right? They've had about 5% of the production for decades. They never had any more of it. People don't quite understand the amount of capital uh, it takes to run a packing plant, uh, much less uh, also own a string of feed yards. So it's not been a major issue. It's been something that people are concerned about. But as far as the actual economics of the industry, it really has not been a factor. They're busy doing what they're doing. And, and you've talked a little bit about chickenization, um, or, or at least that was what Bill had uh, talked about it. Yeah, no, no, we're going to talk about that. That's my next question. <laughs> there is there is not enough capital in the world. Uh, well, there is in the world, but you'd have to have several trillion of it uh, in order to, to handle the beef industry like the pork and the chicken industry. The chicken industry, very confined uh, to a certain area of the country, uh, pork, the, the eastern third of the country, the geography involved, there's something like 900 million acres of land in this country that is not suitable for farming. And if you live in Brooklyn, uh, what I'm talking about is there's too much rock and not enough dirt. There's not enough rainfall. The temperature is not properly. There's a reason that the center of the country raises the amount of corn it does, because that is the optimal place to run it. You're not going to farm nearly as much corn in Arizona or Utah, because it takes so much in the way of of water inputs and other inputs. Sure. No, I understand. I think everybody who listens to this show gets that. Um, but what I what I want to talk about in terms of chickenizing the cattle industry, you said in your uh, you know Q and A with Chuck, um, you said that the control over genetics, etc., you know, nutrition and all that stuff, were a response to consumer demand. But when a packer is telling. Uh, a cattle rancher, you know, wh- how they want their cattle raised. In other words, that they won't do business with that guy if he won't play by their rules, um, whatever those rules may be. The, then the then, then you've got a problem. I mean, that, that rancher has a problem, and he's out of the loop, right, Bill? Am I right? Like, well, You're absolutely right. And what chickenization is, it's the vertical integration of the industry in the livestock sector from birth to plate. Right. In the poultry sector, from embryo from to plate. plate. Right. And so what the meat packers are attempting to do is actually capture away from independent producers the live cattle supply chain. They've already done that in the poultry and hog industries. There isn't a competitive market for producers trying to enter those industries. The cattle industry is the last frontier, and it is true that it is least susceptible to this capture by the meat packers. But the meat packers figured out that we have a multi-segmented supply chain. We have cow-calf producers, the farmers and ranchers that raise and, and care for the mother cows and produce calves every year. We have the backgrounders and stockers that buy yearlings and put them out and graze them on grass for a year. And then we have the feedlots. Now, the feedlots is, is a sector that is becoming increasingly con- concentrated. We only have about... 27,000 feedlots left in the United States, but only about 2,000 of those feed about 87% of all the fed cattle. Wow. So in our industry, at the top of the pyramid, you have four meat packers control 85% of the market. They buy 87% of all of their cattle from about 2,100 feedlots. And here's how the chickenization process works. 
the four consolidated monopolistic meat packers decide who has timely access to the marketplace. Right. A cattle producer with a fat animal, a finished animal ready for slaughter, weighs about 1,300 pounds. If it's standing in a feedlot in Kansas in 110-degree weather, that producer needs to sell that animal very quickly yes. or it will degrade in quality if not die. And so the meat packers have the producer under a barrel. So they restrict access. Says, We're not going to give you timely access to the market. The cattle producer loses money, has to overfeed cattle, is subjected to more death loss. And then the meat packers come around after they have already imposed a new economic uh, challenge to producers, a new risk. It's called market access risk. Right. Then the meat packers come around and say, we're going to solve the problem we just created. We will guarantee you timely access. When your cattle are ready, we'll slaughter them. Only, if, But you have to promise us to commit the cattle to us under a contract, but you will not establish a price. Yes, you your thank cattle, you. That was what I wanted to later. And that's how they control the industry. Right. They then shift cattle out of the price discovery cash market, the right. competitive marketplace, shift them into these formula contracts through coercion by denying them timely access to the market. The formula contracts are merely a commitment to deliver cattle in the future, and then the price is going to be based on that ever-shrinking cash market. And so the cattle packer, the meat packer, has the incentive to manipulate the cash market down, which they can do just by avoiding it because it's so thin. And when they do that, it causes cattle prices to drop. And then they can price the tens of thousands of cattle that they have committed to them through the formula contracts off of this depressed cash price. Okay, stop that, there. That is the process. Stop there because I want to let I want to let control of the supply chain. They're Understood. not trying to capture the, the land and capital requirements of the cow producer. You got to let Steve respond to that. That was a very important point you made about the cash discovery market and about the the lack of transparency in those contract for, those formula contracts. Steve, I want you to respond to that. What what right, is what Bill thing. said accurate? And is that, in fact, the way it gets played, that you can deny somebody access to packing? I mean, I've heard this no, in every country every around the world. This is happening, by the way. For every good pen of cattle out there, there are two or three other packers trying to get their hands on it. And, of course, Bill's talking about the bigs, but there are other packers out there also, some smaller and medium-sized packers. Yeah, but come on. That's, some of the they're geography. they're like 20% of the business. Way. If the packers, Bill likes this word, control, but they really don't have control. They have the opportunity to compete. And if they really, if Packers control the market, then we wouldn't have seen the highest fed cattle market that we've ever seen in history, way beyond what anybody expected in 2014 and half of 2015. Well, that's because you didn't have any it's, supply. Of course you had we, high prices. Yeah, uh, we had the supply. The no, supply you have been, the smallest I'm herds in the 1980s. They've been running between 24 billion pounds and 27 billion pounds for the last 15 years. It really hasn't changed all that much. It is still a supply and demand setup. But one way, there's a difference between assuming that the packers can set whatever price they want to and realizing that they have to sell everything that they have within a matter of most of them, 72 hours. They don't even do the long-term aging that goes to another purveyor to do that because your best quality beef is going to be aged between 14 and 21 days, and every day of cold storage for a packer costs them hundreds of millions of dollars. So what it's 
if they can't sell it on the other end, they're not going to be able to pay uh, the kind of prices that Bill would like to see. He would like to see uh, us have uh, a, a, only be able to get our ground beef from our own cows here in this country, half the amount that we used to run, so that the call cows, as he said, 20% of your income can come from selling uh, the old cows, but there are not very many people in this country that are going to start spending $25 for a hamburger at McDonald's or Burger King, which is what happened if you'd cut your supply in half of ground beef. We would not have the, uh, <clears throat> the hamburger chains and the uh, ground beef available at the, at the grocery store. I mean, that's as far as producers go, the best budget item that we have to offer consumers is ground beef. They can make it into any number of things. They can manipulate it however they want to, and it provides something that's fast and convenient. That's one of the things that our focus on consumers has done over the last 20 years is try and provide the pre-cooked items, whether it's hamburger or whether it's roast. You didn't used to be able to go to the grocery counter and buy uh, pre-cooked roast or pre-marinated or uh, roast with the carrots and the potatoes and everything right there, so all you have to do is go home and throw it together. I do but not consider that an improvement myself, but, you know, <clears throat> I understand what you're saying. you want to do. A lot. And I think everyone in this country should be cooking their own food, and we would have a lot fewer, di- you know, diabetes, a lot less overweight. I mean, the problem with all those prepared foods is that they're not actually very good for you. They contain a lot of sodium. They contain a lot of sugar. That's a fact. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, this is all because this is what consumers want, and this makes it better for the consumers. It doesn't make it better for the consumers. In my opinion, it makes it better for the packers. But not, that's, not I am not in the alike. business. They have different things. I understand like that, but I, you know, I, I, I think that painting a portrait of, of the of the industry, of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and, and the other industry groups that support packers, um, much as uh, obnoxious as Bill Bullard is, um, and you'll excuse me, Bill, for saying that, but really when I can't shut somebody up, I get quite annoyed. Um, you know, he has a point, and, and to go back to that initial point, Point that he was making about the way uh, the prices for cattle are not uh, given up front. And, and this is happening around the world. In Australia, for example, I just wrote a book about the meat industry. In Australia, the, the, the ranchers actually went to the government and said, you have got to help us because these packers, because they have so few packing plants and the packers are setting prices and they're doing exactly what Bill, what, what Bill described, which is that like, if you don't play ball with them, then they'll screw you by not giving you access to the, to the, uh, to the slaughter plant. And then you're, you're stuck with cattle that either you know overweight or you've had to feed them too long or they die so you know I'm, but in I'm, this country even though the ranchers and feeders have gotten together and put together their own beef alliances and their own production chains and have bought into packing plants so they have a outlets. few but i mean as we all know and this is a fact 80 percent of the beef in this country is managed by four plants by four and companies. What, and that's what, the problem. We have too much consolidation in this market. And that's why guys like Bill Bullard and other small, smaller ranchers who want to go into the business, young people who want to get into the business, cannot compete. 
because the prices have been depressed, in my opinion, by Packers. I mean, I'm not in the beef industry, but boy, guys, I have read an awful lot about your industry. And I've spent seven years interviewing guys just like you about this. So, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I know as much as you do, but I, I'm also not going to pretend that the NCBA is all on the side of the consumer when what I really see is that they are serving their own interests very well and not necessarily serving those of people who are still in the farming community. And I wanted to bring one more thing up about the TPP before we close, because we only have three more minutes. And that is, is that one of the features of the TPP is a clause about dispute settlement and the fact that countries have to abide by a ruling like a World Trade Organization ruling, as we just did when we when we caved to country of origin labeling being discarded by the cattle industry uh, because of our trading partners, Mexico and Canada, because it was a barrier to trade. Now, we can what's going to happen with TPP is that, you know, companies can come in here, <clears throat> buy our land, pollute the land and then claim that when we demand that they clean it up, that it's a barrier to trade. And we don't get to adjudicate that in our court system. And Steve, I know you're a fan of the of the of the the TPP. How do you feel about that particular clause? I consider that a very dangerous, uh, you know, place to go. Well, we have a boatload of environmental regulations. We have a lot of land use regulations they in this suck. country, so it's highly <laughs> unusual that anybody can uh, can abuse. Steve, who are you talking to here? Do you know how much I know about your industry? Like you, your those feedlots have polluted so much of the groundwater and the land in this country. The EPA has absolutely no clout whatsoever, and there is nothing. I mean, the the waters of the United States Act that that the cattle industry essentially, the meat industry essentially shut down. Uh, you know, saying this is unfair to cattle ranchers because they don't want to deal with the runoff from the feedlots and from spraying it on uh, spraying shit all over the fields. I mean, you would have these are terrible the regulations. A chunk of the, re- the feed yards that have disappeared that Bill talks about over the last 20 years have disappeared because they can't even begin to comply with all the environmental regulations. Understood. And they should. At the state and the national level. There is very little. There are two or three things that have happened in the hog industry over the last 40 years, and everybody paints the entire livestock feeding industry with those accidents. That is not the way it is run in most of the, of the country. The uh, waters of the United States is an absolute ridiculous extension <laughs> of the Clean Water Act that would basically allow them to regulate about any little mud puddle they want. I to know that's the a, that is such an exaggeration, and that is I read oh, the regulation. Not, I read the regulation, English. dude. That is not what it says. But anyway, unfortunately, we have to close. Well, listen, I thank you guys both very much for joining me on this program. And I'd like to have you. I'd like to. I hope you'll do it again. Steve, will you come back? You betcha. I love to talk to people in New York. (laughs) And people who actually know about your business. I'm sure that's refreshing. Or maybe not in my case. And Bill, thank you so much. I really appreciated your point of view. And, uh, you know, as you may have uh, observed from my comments, um, I'm more on the side of RCAF than I am on the CBA. But um, basically, I'm I'm all about the meat industry. I think you guys do a great job. And I really appreciate what you do and your contribution to the uh, gross domestic product. and And I wish you both the best. And we'll talk again soon. Take care. Thanks, Thanks for listening, people. And uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.